Amen. Good to see you guys this morning as we continue in this Kingdom First series where with our summer series, our goal sometimes is, is that every week we kind of add another layer or, or help you, you bring focus and get more understanding of, of what our, our, our series for the summer might be. So we hope that each week we're giving you a different, maybe a different take on what the kingdom is, but that it just helps you add to the definition, kind of grounded in scripture, of what the kingdom is like. And so today we're going to look at a couple of parables that Jesus uses in describing the kingdom. So I want to start to kind of get our minds uh, turning here and kind of get us thinking through the following question. When does a little thing become a big thing? When does a little thing become a big thing? And maybe the, the parents in the room have, have gone back to a time where you, you've had to interrogate a child over something that has happened, that, that something was broken or something, a mess was made in the house, and the kid is pretty much dead to rights. You already know what happened. Kids are terrible liars, right? But they, but they try their hardest, and they, they keep spinning it. I don't know how the lamp broke, Mom. I was walking through the room, and, and the lamp just decided to, to take its own life by jumping off the table. And, and that's what, we must have ghosts in this house, and, and the, the little thing becomes a, a, a big thing. When does a little thing become a big thing? Did you know in this country there were no dandelions in North America until the late 1600s? None. That is not a native plant to this area. How'd your yard look this past spring? Yeah, some joker from Europe's like, you know what, we should take some of those with us because we can put some of that in a, a salad and eat it and, and it's great. It'll, and it's out of control. And every time you mow, it gets worse. When does a little thing become a big thing? Just, just look in the mirror if, if, if you want to answer that question. Look in the mirror. Everyone in this room started out as something little. Something insignificant hidden away in your mother's womb. And you grew from a single cell to over now what is over 100 trillion in your body. Did you realize that's how many cells were in the human body? Over 100 trillion. That's 100 with 12 zeros after it. That's a lot. When does a little thing become a big thing? And Jesus gives us two parables of the kingdom starting out as a little thing and becoming something big. And we're only looking at three verses this morning. So you might say three verses, short message, short-ish. Hang with me. I'll get you to lunch on time. But let's pick it up in chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel, an entire chapter where Jesus is giving parable after parable, talking about the kingdom. Look at verse 31. Here is another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of the garden plants. It grows into a tree, and the birds come and make nests in its branches. Jesus starts by telling us the kingdom is like a seed. He's telling us that the kingdom is insignificant. Now, I don't mean it's insignificant that the kingdom is insignificant, meaning it doesn't matter. It certainly does. That it's not important. It certainly is. But I'm saying that to the naked eye, the kingdom has insignificant value. Jesus likens it to a tiny seed that you could fit on the end of a pen. And this flies in the face of what we think about the kingdom these days. And it certainly would have struck his listeners as bizarre. Because while Israel wasn't a kingdom at that time, they'd already had their chance. They were a kingdom for years, and then the Assyrians came in and took part of it, and then the Babylonians came in and took the rest of it. And so we have this remnant that's been back in Israel for a little while, but there's still a, a million plus 
there in and around the area, maybe even more than that. And so while this isn't a kingdom per se, there was a king, in quotation marks, I'll use the term loosely, and his name was Herod. And Herod lived in a big palace there. Herod lived in a palace that was attached to a fortress that was attached to the western wall that runs down the side of Jerusalem. And you knew this because it was a large palace. Nobody was confused about where the king lived. You could point to it like right there. That's exactly where the king lives. Look at that structure. Who else would live there? But even Herod bowed to somebody else. He was only named king because Rome gave him that title. And Rome, as well as, the, uh, as well as all of the Mediterranean world, bowed to another king named Caesar. And you knew what the Roman Empire looked like at that time. You knew the boundaries of it. It stretched all the way from the east, there in the Persian Gulf, what we would now call today, over in the west, what we would now know as Portugal. East to west, that's about 3,000 miles. And north to south, the northern, ha- the northern part of the Roman Empire stretched all the way to England. Side note, if you notice, it only goes to England because they got to a point where they're like, we're going to stop right there. We're not going to go any further into Scotland. Those people are crazy. We're not going to mess with them. Just put a wall. And it's still there to this day. It's called Hadrian's Wall. And that was the limit of the Roman Empire. They're like, we're not going to fight those. Have you seen Braveheart? Those people are nuts. And then it stretched in the south to the northern coastline of all of Africa. Now that's the boundary and all of it belonged to Caesar. Now that's a kingdom. And here comes Jesus doing his thing, doing what Jesus does best, taking the assumed that we have about things and flipping it on its head. He doesn't come out and say, hey, the kingdom is like this big fortress, impenetrable, strong, high above everything else for everyone to see. And I'm standing up there pointing down on him and saying, I'm the king, you better worship me. He doesn't say that at all. He goes, no, we're going to go small. The kingdom is small. It's insignificant. It's the smallest of all seeds. And if I were to put a mustard seed randomly under a chair in this room, it would be tough to find. Even with the lights on, it'd be hard to find because of its insignificance. Jesus is a terrible salesperson. He's terrible at it if you think about it. Who wants to buy in on this thing? This thing is insignificant. You can fit on the the tip of a pen. Who wants in on that? Somebody out there, you mean it's not going to be this big thing here in Jerusalem, Jesus? You mean we're not going to build this giant temple and just put your face on it? Who else would be in charge of it? Look whose face is on that building. You mean we're not going to round up the frustrated and the disenfranchised among Israel, the religious and the political zealots, and we're not going to storm Herod's palace and chop off his head and then say, let's go to Rome and do the same to Caesar. Come on. Jesus says, no. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this tiny seed and I'm going to put it in the ground and I'm going to let it do its thing. And what it does, he says, is it grows into a large bush, almost tree-like, 10 to 12 feet tall at the time from something so insignificant. That's what it springs from. A little thing becomes a big thing. Then Jesus uses another parable to describe the kingdom. Pick it up in verse 33. Jesus also uses this, used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast into three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Jesus is telling us something else about the kingdom here, and it's that the kingdom is hidden. It's insignificant, but the kingdom is also hidden. Our text says that the lady put the yeast into 
the flower. But if you read that word literally, it says the woman hid or she hides the, the yeast into a large batch of, of dough or flour. This is the same word that's used later in chapter 13 when, where Jesus uses a parable to describe a treasure that is hidden in a field. So the, the, the woman hides the yeast into this large batch of dough. Again, when we speak of kingdoms, we tend to think in terms of area, square mileage, the landmarks, the things that are observable. Here's the boundary of the kingdom. Here's the place where the king lives. And it's observable to the naked eye. And Jesus says, not this one. You can't see what it's doing on the surface. It's subtle. It's hidden away. The kingdom is hidden away out here in the countryside. It's out here in Galilee. It's over there in Samaria. It's out there in Nazareth, among the insignificant, among the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the fishermen, the half-breeds. That's where the kingdom hides. And when Herod's dead and Caesar's no more, the hidden yeast is still going to be working its way through the dough, a little thing becoming a big thing. Jesus says the kingdom is like a tiny seed and a piece of yeast. Why does he say this? Why does he use these two illustrations? I, I don't know. I'll give you a few options. None of this is, is, is the, the gospel truth, but maybe some things to think about. Maybe Jesus uses these two illustrations to remind his people, Israel, the Jews, of how they began. How do they begin? As one seed. One insignificant seed, Abraham. And it was about 2,000 years to get from Abraham to Jesus, from the seed that was hidden in Sarah's womb. Just a small amount of yeast hidden in the vast three measures of flour of the Middle East. But now in Jesus' time, here's Israel. And they speak of Abraham as their father, their greatest ancestor. But by now they are so far removed from him, both generationally and spiritually, that there's no emphasis on the faith that Abraham placed in God to get, to Israel, get Israel to where they were at the time. No, there's only this emphasis now on this is what you're to believe if you want to belong here. This is what the kingdom of God will look like. And this is how it will arrive. We've crunched the numbers. This is how Messiah is going to show up. This is what you're doing wrong. So get in line. So Jesus gives this subtle reminder to Israel. You started out this way. Now look what you've become. Maybe perhaps it's to expose some hearts. Part of the parable is, is, is it, it gives this visceral response from us. We, it uses illustrations. It uses imagery to get us thinking a certain way. And neither of these images would have been attractive illustrations to Jesus' listeners. Both of these items were known for their infectious spreading qualities. Wild mustard can get out of control. It can get out of control. And any farmer or gardener in the crowd that heard this would have been well acquainted with how it can take over a garden. In fact, in some of the things I was reading about this, that there were some Jewish laws in these two texts that were called the Talmud and the Midrash. And if you've never heard of that, it's okay. What these are uh, essentially are commentaries on the Old Testament, kind of added laws to this, an explanation of the scripture. And some of those forbid mustard planting in one's garden because they knew it could get out of control. So they forbid it. Don't put that in the ground. It's going to take over everything. It can get out of hand. And now that Jesus has their attention, he follows it up with another unpopular Jewish word, yeast. 
Now, if we read this, if we don't pay attention to the world Jesus lived and taught in, we can read this and think, yeah, that makes sense. I've seen grandma make bread. She puts the yeast in the dough, and then she puts like the towel over top of it so it can kind of do its thing. And then it it, it grows, and then later on she bakes it, and it's yummy. I get that. But if we don't pay attention to the world Jesus lives in, what's Israel's history with yeast? It's not good. Not a good track record of yeast in Israel. Yeast is mentioned 38 times in the Old Testament, and only once is it used positively. God repeatedly commanded the Jews that any bread to be eaten at festivals and holidays needed to be made without yeast. You've seen it today. It's called matzah. You ever had it? It's bland. There's not much to it. If you flip it over on the back, it says ingredients, flour and water. That's it. That's all that's in there. And that's what they were commanded to eat. But once again, over time, eating bread without yeast simply became another law. Rather than its intention as a means of remembering God's deliverance. And his deliverance from Egypt was hasty. On the night of Passover, he says, we're going to have to get out of here quick. So you don't have time to let that yeast work its way through the dough. We've got to make it without it. Because you need to have your bellies full because we're going to be getting out of here. That's why we would do that. That's why the Jews would make it without yeast. It is to remember God's hasty deliverance from Egypt. But now it just became another law. Hey, make sure that bread is unleavened or we're going to be unclean for temple. Hey, don't ruin Passover like you did last year with that bread. Even Jesus likened the teaching of the Pharisees to what? Yeast. You think that won him friends that day when he said that? Yeast, it can spread subtly almost hidden-like until it had corrupted others, until they were thinking and saying and spouting off the same things that the Pharisees were saying. It spread like yeast and worked its way through that dough. So when the listeners heard Jesus describing the kingdom of heaven like two things they had been taught for a long time to avoid, I can imagine many saying, thanks, Jesus. It's going to be a hard pass for me. It's going to be a no for me, dog. I'm out. But what if... Just what if Jesus used these two examples because that's what he was to the world? Jesus was insignificant and hidden to the world at the time. Think about his birth. Where was he born? Jerusalem? In Jerusalem General Hospital? In the finest Messiah suite known to man? No! He's born in Bethlehem. Some little hick town five miles outside of big, important, palacy Jerusalem where the king lived. Who were his parents? Nobody's. His dad builds stuff, fixes things. His mom, you know, she was pregnant before they even got married. It was a huge scandal. Who found out about it? Not just a bunch of uneducated, goofy, smelly shepherds out in the middle of a field. Insignificant. The angel didn't show up over downtown Jerusalem. Everybody! Messiah is born today in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Get Get your rear end down there and worship him. Hidden. Hidden away in the spare room of somebody's house where they bring the barn animals in for the night to eat and do their business on the floor. That's where the king of the universe was born. Hidden. Then the wise men show up and say, where's the newborn king of the Jews? They ask that to the king, by the way. When you show up to the king... And say, hey, where's the king? That's a problem. King's like, right here. This is the king. I don't know what you clowns are talking about. The king's right here. And then when Herod says, you guys tell me where the king is hidden, I want to go. 
worship him. Now, I know he wasn't. He wanted to go take that little kid out. He wants to take that baby out. And so what does the angel say to Joseph? Go hide in Egypt. Insignificant, hidden. Who are Jesus' followers? Another group of insignificant people, a bunch of third shift fishermen, tax collectors, sellout who work for the Romans. Got another couple political zealots over there that just want to take swords and chop Romans' heads off. These are the guys that are following Jesus around. Maybe some of them can read, but they weren't seminary trained. Most likely 18, 19 year old. You know how teenagers are. No clout, no marketing team, no PR, no live stream, no core values, none of that. Jesus' teaching, hidden. Just back up a few verses in today's chapter. Verse 10, look what it says. Why do you use parables when you talk to people? It's hidden. What do we do with this? The kingdom is insignificant and it's hidden. What do we do? So I just have a few takeaways for you this morning. Have four of them. Maybe one of them jives more with you than another. Maybe you like all four. It's okay. It's just kind of a buffet. Those are starting to open back up now. So you just kind of take what you like out of this. Maybe you want all of it on your plate. But here's a takeaway to start, that the kingdom is already set in motion. It's already doing its thing. I don't have to expedite the process. I don't have to look at the kingdom here and say, Jesus, I think I've got a strategy that's really going to get this thing going. We've kind of stalled out for 2,000 years. Here, let me give you some of my expert advice. This is how we can really get this thing to take off. Because you know what? Even Jesus couldn't stop it. You realize that? Jesus could not even stop what he put in motion. Here's a fascinating text out of Mark 7 after he had already been healing people. Look at what the text says. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, what happened? The more it spread. Jesus himself, the king, couldn't stop what he set in motion. It's already doing its thing. The seed is already in the ground. The yeast is already in the flower, and it's working its way through. So I don't have to help. I don't have to come up with a new gimmick or an idea to help Jesus spread the kingdom. You know what else? I also don't have to worry about something coming in and interrupting the kingdom's growth. Maybe we spent a lot of time on that. What's going to come in and halt the kingdom? What's going to keep the kingdom from, from spreading? What's going to derail it? I don't have to worry about it interrupting, something else interrupting the process. I don't have to worry about another kingdom coming in and supplanting this one. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians where, where the church is having some, some disagreement about who they like to listen to and who's their favorite preacher on Sunday morning. And some guys are like, you know, I like Paul. Paul's a, a really, he's a real good scholar and he's a smart guy and he knows the stuff and he's connecting it to the scripture. And I really like how, and then and some are like, you know what? I like Apollos. He's a younger dude. He wears the hip jeans and the Jordan ones on Sundays. And he, he knows what he's talking about. He's got great hair. He's got great great charisma. So I follow that guy. You know what Paul, how Paul addresses this? He says, listen, I, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. God has the, the seed doing its thing. It doesn't matter who the Sunday morning guy is. The seed is already set in motion and it's doing its thing. So the kingdom is already advancing. So a few years after Jesus makes this statement and the emperor known as Nero, who was then Caesar, a bit unstable, if you've read about him, decides he's had enough, 
with the followers of Jesus and that kingdom might be doing a little too much and starting to threaten who I am. So then one night walking around his garden, he says, you know what, it's dark here. Let's bring in some of those Christians and light them on fire so I can see what's going on out here. And he did that. And he said, you know what else? Let's have these Christians fight some lions in the arena for our entertainment. And that's probably the last time any group named Lions was successful. Dear Pastor Clark, you're making fun of the Lions. That's my favorite team. I, I get it. Some of us follow the Browns. We're, we're all in the same boat together here. So, so even when that happens, or maybe a few years after that, when the destruction of Jerusalem happened in 70 AD, and the Romans are just like, we've had it with all of you. And they just, they just level the whole thing, and there's one piece left. It's called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, and you can go there now. It's still there in Jerusalem. Or what about a few years later in the 1300s where the Black Plague starts to spread through Europe and it kills anywhere between 75 and 200 million? The numbers are a little fuzzy. There was no CDC at the time that was reporting what was going on in the 14th century. What happens when that was going on? Or let's, let's, let's go to the 1930s when a maniac in Germany just started invading everywhere in Europe to build his own kingdom and everywhere around the world is wondering, are we next? Is a swastika going to fly over this country? Or we take care of that issue. And then right after that, then we all become scared that the commies are going to nuke us into the Lord's presence. Or what happened when things started to get even sillier, even for, for me growing up in the 1980s, when I had people, well-intentioned people, I suppose, in Winchester, Kentucky, telling me that the Smurfs and that He-Man are going to be my gateway into hell. A cartoon! And then when that didn't lead us all into Satan, then it was going to be Beavis and Butthead in the 1990s. And then when that didn't happen, it was going to be Harry Potter in the 2000s. And on, and on, and on, and on. Do you know what the church of Jesus was doing at that time when all of this scary stuff was going on? Except for He-Man and the Smurfs. Those are cartoons. Thank you, Mom, for not throwing away my He-Man toys when all that stuff was going on. Do you know what the kingdom was doing when all this scary stuff was happening? It was spreading. It was advancing. At no point did the kingdom of Jesus say, we can't beat the Nazis. When Nikita Khrushchev took his shoe off and pounded it on the table and said, we will bury you in communism. The kingdom didn't say, nobody can stop this. When we saw two planes crash into the World Trade Center and we thought the whole place was going to hell. The kingdom did not stop. It just kept going. You know why? Because that's what Jesus said it would do. And what he says goes because he's the king. So listen to me, church. All caps, triple underlined. There is no conflict, no pestilence, no natural disaster, no war, no election, no legislation, no Supreme Court decision. None of that stuff is ever going to stop the kingdom from advancing. So quit worrying about it. So if you happen to read or see or hear something you don't like and it doesn't jive with you, don't hit the panic button. The kingdom isn't going anywhere except onward. So hop on. It's irreversible. We can't reverse the plant back into a seed. Hey, you're getting too big. Get back in that seed shell. The bread cannot be unyeasted. 
as if some joker out there at Thanksgiving is like, I didn't want yeast in my bread. Take all that yeast out. You can't do that. It's already done its thing. Second takeaway might be closely related to that is that this, it, it, it's, it's doing its thing, but it may not expand like I think it should or could. It may not do it the way I think it should be done. Well, I'd do that a lot better. You know, if I was Jesus, I would have called the marketing firm. I would have got some business cards. I'd have put some posters up. He needed an internet deal. He needed a website. He needed, he needed all this stuff. That would have been better. It may not work the way I think it should work or could. Because there was a theory, if you go back a couple hundred years ago when missions started to get really big, that we thought if we can just reach every unreached people group, Jesus will be contractually obligated to show up. Well, you've reached everybody. I've got no other choice but to come back. But not everybody's gift is evangelism. If it's yours, that's awesome. Keep speaking about who Jesus is and what he's doing in your life. But if that's not yours, don't feel ashamed about it. Moses couldn't talk to people. You remember that? Moses is like, I got a, I've got like, who knows? Scholars are, 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 are divided on it. Some, some say that he had a, a stutter, a stammer, and he couldn't, he couldn't speak. He's like, I can't even talk to Pharaoh. How am I? So God's like, fine, we'll have your brother talk for you. So if that's not your bag, it's okay. Don't feel uh, embarrassed and don't feel belittled if you can't speak well about stuff because you know sometimes your most significant work in the kingdom is your understated faithfulness just being you just being yourself let people see how jesus has permeated through the dough of your life that's how you can be on mission and for the kingdom use your skill set the neighbor's lawnmower breaks and we've gotten all the rain in the world this past week and someone needs to mow and he doesn't know how to fix it but you do then go over there and fix that for him. Be generous. Maybe God has blessed you to be generous with others. You may not be able to speak great. It doesn't matter. If you can be generous, that is how the kingdom is working its way through the dough and through the soil. It doesn't have to be visible to us all the time. Again, we can't observe the plant growing or the yeast expanding with the naked eye. It's kind of Jesus' point. It's just doing its thing, and we really can't see what it's doing. Maybe we also may need to put some of the voices to rest in our head because it may not expand like I think it could or it should. So when someone comes on the news or on the radio and says the kingdom's not going to make it if we don't pass this, if we don't vote for this, the kingdom's not going to make it. That's not true. Jesus said the very gates of hell are not going to pervade against the kingdom. So if that's not going to make it, nothing's going to. But it may not expand like I think it should or it could, and that's okay. Another, another takeaway, echoing Jesus' words, that when it is fully matured, the kingdom's going to be unmistakable. Like right now, it's still moving. It's still moving, it's still growing. But when it's fully matured, when the plant is fully grown, 10 to 12 feet from the tiny seed, no one says, what is that over there? I don't know what that is. You know what it is. It's huge. It's taking over things. And likewise, the, the dough is going to be ready. And you'll know because it's changed. It's ready to go. And the kingdom here in, in Jesus' time, it starts with him. It expands to 12. It goes to 120. It goes to Pentecost and 5,000 are added. And on and on and on and on. And it's still going. And right now, the kingdom's currently large. <laughs> Depending on which figure you use, it could be as many as 2.3 billion with a B 
subjects of the kingdom on earth. But, but it seems hidden and insignificant because we're not all huddled in one place, but it is everywhere. It's doing its thing. And remember, it's not just the seed in me, and it's not just the seed in this church or even the seed in this country, but it's the whole kingdom. So when we hear these numbers and figures like no one's going to church anymore and the church is on decline and we start to freak out and think, well, if, if it's going like this here, it's, gonna, it's a domino effect and it's going to do the rest of the world. What arrogance do we have to think that we have the foothold or the corner market on the kingdom and if things aren't necessarily going our way, then everything else is going to go to pot? What false hubris is that? The kingdom is growing like wildfire and crazy in the southern hemisphere, South America, southern parts of Africa. It's taking over. It's just a little yeast. It's a little yeast getting through the dough. That's all it is. Matt was talking about a, a church uh, somewhere in, in one of the, the countries there in, in uh, south of Africa that, that they decided they're going to plant a church there, and they had a, a few people show up one week, and inside of two weeks there's a thousand. Let's just see it doing its thing. It's just yeast working its way through the dough. The kingdom is growing. It is advancing. And when it's fully matured, everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to know what that is. It'll be unmistakable. Last takeaway, this is probably my favorite one out of all of them, is that the kingdom, it's welcoming like the branches. And it's generous like the bread for everyone. I love this about the parable because both of those parables end with it being for something else, with it being for somebody else. It's not just for the individual. It's not just for one person. And this is probably where Jesus lost a lot of people because Israel wasn't interested in sharing with anybody. Israel wasn't interested in, in taking Judaism to other people. Israel wanted it just to be, this is just us. We're God's people. We're the chosen. Nobody else gets it. And what does Jesus do? He talks about the seed becoming this giant plant. But what does Jesus not say? He doesn't say, you know what? This guy put the seed in the ground. It grew into this big mustard plant. You know what that guy did? He took some of that seed. He took it down to the market. He sold it. He turned a profit. Then he came back home. He took some of the stuff that was left. He grounded it up. He made mustard. He grabbed himself a kosher hot dog because, you know, he doesn't want to violate the rules or anything. And he has this hot dog that afternoon with, with mustard on it. It was great. He felt like he was at the ballpark. He didn't say any of that stuff. What does he say? He said it grows to the point where the wild birds of the air, the fowl, F-O-W-L, we don't use that word a lot, but they came and found rest, found a home in its branches. It found it as a place of rest. Not the pretty birds, not the cute little birds with the pleasant songs. No, we're talking about those ugly birds that hang out in your trees. You know, the ones that just make like the worst noises and they're, they're kind of goofy looking. And one, if you look at it the right way, like their head almost looks like it's navy blue and then the rest of their body's black it's like a real color contrast. They can't even get their color scheme right. They kind of look, and they're just like, wah, That's what he's talking about. That's who's coming and hanging out in there because the kingdom needs to be winsome where everybody is welcome. Everybody has a chance to come and land and build a nest here. And the branches of this part of the plant here in Wasion needs to be welcoming to all the birds, not just the pretty ones. Not just the ones who sing well, but all of the birds of the area come. What kind of branches are we presenting to the community to say, come, plant your nest here. Find rest here. Find a home here. Not just within the confines of this room or this building, but this kingdom here. Come find rest here. 
what kind of attractiveness are we making the branches look? Likewise, the yeast in the dough. Jesus says the woman put the yeast in three measures of flour. I'm like, I don't know what three measures of flour is. It's a lot. We're going to use this really specific mathematic uh, number, a lot. Probably about 50 pounds, almost a bushel, as most, uh, most scholars would say. It's about 50 pounds worth by today's me- measurements. Most commentaries say that that was enough bread to feed over 100 people. No person in Israel would make that much bread just for the heck of it. Nobody's family is that big at that time. But Jesus is using this to make a point. He's saying there's enough bread to feed over 100 people just by this little thing that just worked its way through the dough. And the end result was to have bread to feed others. This wasn't a science experiment that Jesus was talking about. Watch what I can do with this yeast. Boom. And Jesus says, my kingdom is one that feeds others. So we don't hoard the kingdom to ourselves. We put that bread in the oven so that others can smell it out in the community. So that the fragrance of that starts to waft out and people are like, oh, I smelled good. I smelled that out there. What is that? What you got? And we offer that to them. So to the world, kingdom's insignificant. And it's hidden, but it's advancing. It's going to do its thing. We just need to trust in that. And we just need, actually, we just need a little faith. Now that I think about it, Jesus somewhere said, you know, all you need is faith the size of what? Faith the size of what? Mustard seed. Yeah, something that size. Let's pray to that end. Father, Thank you that the kingdom is doing its thing. It's moving. It's advancing. We don't have to be worried that something's going to stop it. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to try harder, come up with a new strategy or a new scheme, new marketing ploy. We're just like you. We have to just put the seed in the ground put the yeast in the dough and let it do its thing. Father, I pray that we'd be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by the seed and the yeast that it's going to do its thing. And it may not look like we like it. It may not be my choice. It may not be someone else's choice. But God, once it's fully mature, there'll be no mistake in it. So Lord, how are we making the plant that's growing attractive for those to find rest in that, to find a home? And what kind of food are we offering? What's the aroma coming out of the oven? Where somebody smells it and says, man, it smells good. I'd like to try that. Jesus, would you work these parables in our hearts? They're hard. They're hard to understand. But God, by your spirit, you will illuminate that. You will help us understand what it means to be seed and yeast as part of the kingdom, and it's just doing its thing. Keep speaking to that, uh, to us, Jesus, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.